We're going to read now from God's Word. We're going to read from Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah 25, and that's on page 586. On the sheet it says we're reading from verse 6 to 12, but we're actually only reading to verse 9. So that's verse 6 to 9 of Isaiah chapter 25 on page 586. Isaiah 25 verse 6, this is God's word, it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, This is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now this morning we finish off a series in John's Gospel chapters 1 to 4. And God willing, we'll return to John's Gospel after the summer or possibly into next year. This morning though we read from John's Gospel chapter 4 verses 43 to 54, and uh, you'll find that on page 880 in the Church Bibles. John 4, 43 to 54. After the two days, Jesus departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet had no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And so he asked them the hour when this began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that it was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Now that is one of, I think, the most highly charged passages in the Gospels that needs treating with the greatest respect and care. It is not a passage there simply to teach us a lesson for faith. It is a passage that we must approach on the basis that for someone in this room, this will not be a hypothetical situation in their past or even in their present. A father utterly distraught that his son is going to die, pleading with Jesus to heal his boy. And uh, Jesus does heal him. The boy is miraculously delivered from the jaws of death with a word from Jesus, go, your son will live. A father distraught that his son is going to die, pleading with Jesus to heal his boy. Now, if as a minister, I was with a father this afternoon whose boy was as sick as this boy, and I said to that father, your son will live, that would be foolish, insensitive, and cruel. And that's the territory we will look at today. This is real, and so we better handle it with great care. This is life at its bleakest, and such is the territory, the ground upon which Jesus walked. One of the great encouragements to me, the longer I go on in pastoral ministry, 
is the Bible and Jesus never shies away from the reality of life. Real Christian faith is most articulate in the most difficult circumstances in life. And that gives us such confidence in the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help to teach us and to shepherd us as we consider these important matters. So we express our thorough dependence on you. Teach us stuff, bring clarity, and shepherd us. And some here who are very needful of that care, will you be especially gracious and gentle to such. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, our subject this morning, and uh, for once you've got no notes on the sheet, the only note you've got at the top of the service sheet on the back is in fact wrong. That's nobody's fault other than mine. I just didn't get finished this week early enough. Our subject this morning is, is a very fundamental one, is, is what is saving belief in Jesus? What is saving belief in Jesus? Not what is belief in Jesus, what is saving belief in Jesus? And that question, and it's intended to, implies that there is such a thing in belief in Jesus that does not save. What is saving belief in Jesus? And what is belief in Jesus that does not uh, save? Now, um, there are no headings, but there are, in fact, three. So here you go, if you're taking notes. Uh, number one is where we'll spend three quarters of our time. Numbers two and three, a little bit of time, partly because numbers two and three, John, the writer, picks up in the rest of the gospel. So number one, uh, let me read it to you if you're writing it down. Saving belief in Jesus is much more than believing in his miracles. And then number two, saving belief in Jesus is coming into the light. That's what John says it is. And number three, saving belief in Jesus is obeying Jesus' words. So most of our time, and I want to take time to do this well, saving belief in Jesus is much more than believing in his miracles. Now, this is a sermon where you are in danger of mishearing what I'm saying. And in spite of how carefully I try to say these things, in the first service, people did mishear what I was saying. So don't do that. Listen. And, uh, and I'm trying to say what the Bible is saying, so it's important. I'm not saying, and the Bible is not saying, of course, that miracles didn't happen as they were recorded. They did. And they are described in these eyewitness accounts. John, the writer, saw what happened, and he wrote it down. He is our witness. When you say that saving belief in Jesus is much more than believing in his miracles, that's not the thin end of the wedge for me to say the miracles didn't really happen. Nor am I saying, and nor is the Bible saying, that Jesus' miracles are not important as a step to belief in Jesus. For many people then and now, the miracles are how Jesus gets a hearing. They make people sit up and take notice of this man and listen to what he says. These miracles happened. These miracles are an important step to belief, but saving belief in Jesus is much more than believing in his miracles. And where this gets us to in John's gospel is, say, in a church, you interviewed people at the door as they leave. Do you believe in God? Yes. Tick. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Most people would say yes. Do you believe that Jesus did the things in the Bible? Yes. Is your faith saving faith? That's a different question. What does that mean? Lots and lots of people believe in Jesus, but it's not saving belief. So Jesus says, miracles are an important first step to belief, but saving belief is much more. Therefore, does that mean that believing in his miracles, believing that Jesus did these miraculous things, believing that he is God is not enough to save us? That's exactly what it means. And John says that again and again, and Jesus says that again 
and again. Now, let's take our time to get our heads around this. Whenever a preacher like me says, I want to show you the structure of this section in the Bible book, one of you usually gets excited, the rest of you switch off. Uh, the one of you gets excited because you are the only person who likes structure apart from the minister, who likes to see how things fit together. Uh, John, the writer of the gospel, understands both of us, both of you. He likes structure, but he doesn't overdo it. You see, his gospel is structured, and yet it is circular and cyclical. And it, John's gospel doesn't take you from A to Z, which means that the answer only comes out of the bag about seven months down the track. John's gospel runs in circles because the Holy Spirit takes God's word and he applies it to people's lives at different points in time. So the answer comes out of the bag almost Sunday by Sunday, week by week as you study this, but it comes to different points in different places to different people. Now, where a writer like John really wants us to see structure, we need to see what it is. And the reason for that is that God inspires these words, yes, but God inspires the way the words are put together. God inspires the structure. We need to see that and understand that. So you're all now on the edges of your seat with excitement. I want to know what the structure is. Okay, you can't contain yourself. Here we go. Have your Bibles open. It helps me if you do that. And chapters 2 to 4 of John's Gospel are a clear section. Chapter 1 is like a prologue. Then chapters 2 to 4, the first main section. Let me show you how that is the case. The section begins and ends with a miracle. Turn back to chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. The first miracle. Jesus is at a wedding in Cana in Galilee. The wine runs out. Jesus tells the servants to fill the water jars used for ceremonial cleansing with water from the well. They do so, and Jesus turns the water into wine the very best wine. The end of the miracle, chapter 2, verse 11, this, the first of his signs, that's John's word for miracle. Signs is a good way to describe a miracle because a sign points to something or someone. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested or revealed his glory and his disciples uh, believed in him. Now, just pause and mark that. That makes it quite clear that the signs, the miracles Jesus did are important for belief. They saw what he did and they believed in him. They believed he could do miracles. More than that, I think they threw their lot in with him. If you and I had been picked by Jesus to be his disciples and you saw him do this kind of stuff, you would intuitively throw your lot in with him. Believing in Jesus because of his miracles is a first step in belief, but it's not saving belief, which is much more than that. That's how the section begins, the wedding at Cana, the miracle of turning water into wine. Turn to the end of the section where we read a few minutes ago, chapter 4, verses 46 to 54. How does it begin? Chapter 4, verse 46 so he, Jesus, came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, just in case we'd forgotten, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And it's obvious that John the writer wants us to see these two miracles as the two book ends. Now just as an aside, uh, this is a sermon with too many asides, but there we go, it's nearly the end of term. Sadly, the first miracle, the changing of water into wine, is material for cheap jokes. Uh, so I have a little book which describes how to do wedding speeches, all that kind of stuff. And there it is in suggested jokes for the best man, the changing of water into uh, wine. You may have been at a wedding when someone cracks a joke about that. Um, I pray that it wasn't the minister. But I warn you, you will never have heard any cheap jokes about the miracle at the end of the section where Jesus heals the sick boy. Who would joke about that? And the fact that Jesus did miracles like that, healing the sick boy, or in Mark 9, 
the boy possessed by a demon and his despairing dad says, Jesus, if you can do anything. Or the little girl in Mark 4, 5, Jairus' daughter who's dead. Jesus says, little girl, rise. The fact that Jesus did miracles like that and they are recorded in the Gospels gives me, with every passing year as a Christian minister, more and more confidence that these things happened exactly as they are described. The reason I think that is that you might make up and spin a story about changing water into wine at a wedding. But you would not make this kind of stuff up. Shame on you if you made up stuff about raising dead children to life. It would not have lasted five minutes, these Gospels. They would have been discredited. These stories would have been changed. It could not have happened. All sorts of people try to discredit the miracle accounts in the Gospels. So we're having a picnic this afternoon. Somebody will forget their lunch. Probably me. So I can sponge off all of you. Imagine if only we had one lunchbox with five loaves and two fishes. We could say it's a miracle, but probably some people will say, well, it's just extraordinary generosity. Everyone shares it around. Or water into wine. Actually, what happened is they just took the wine and they diluted it, and it made it look like a long way. Of course, you can explain that away, and there are all sorts of theories, but not one of the people that tries to debunk these miracles ever has a go at stuff like at the end of John 4. You can't. It's ignored. Now, maybe that's made someone here think about the miracles and you have never really seriously believed that they are more than faith stories. Because no one has ever confronted you to think how scandalous it would be if you made up a faith story about a little girl who was dead who came back to life. And maybe for somebody here, you've begun to think, well, did this happen? If this happened, that is something I need to investigate If this man did do this, well, if that's you, you're on the first step to what is saving faith. But it's obvious to you as you sit here, and that has enticed you to investigate further. That is not saving faith in and of itself. It's a step. This account with this man is very striking. Verse 47, when the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of uh, death. Just to say that Andrew's not the press, in case any of you are worried. He's taking photos for the website. So just ignore him and listen to God's word. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea and Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Do you think for a moment that that man who rode 15 miles on his horse for Capernaum ever thought that Jesus couldn't heal his son? Of course he didn't think that. He thought, yes, he'll heal him. If he's willing to do it, of course he can heal him. Everyone knew that Jesus was a healer. Everyone knew that Jesus could do miraculous things. He knew he could heal him. Now let's pause for the second pause. And uh, let me try and answer the question that often people ask me. Why did Jesus perform miracles And why do they not happen now like this, anyway? I mean, I think I wouldn't say that miraculous supernatural things cannot happen, but uh, none of you will be able to point me to a child who has been brought back from death to life since Jesus was on the earth. I mean, that kind of miracle, extraordinary stuff. Why did he do miracles? Four reasons. These are, I think, the New Testament's reasons. Number one, to reveal to the world that this man called Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Messiah and has unique authority of all humans who have ever lived because he is God and man. That's why he did them. Number two, to indicate that with his coming into the world in his first advent, the everlasting, eternal kingdom of God that will never end has broken into this broken world. Number three, to point us forward to show us what it will be like when that everlasting kingdom 
comes again in its full consummation in the new creation. That's why Ian read from Isaiah. What does that passage in Isaiah point to? It points to the age of new wine, miracle one, Cana. And it points to the age of no death and no tears, miracle two, at the end of John 4. That's not the world we live in. If it were, there would be no hospitals in this city. There would be no oncology units in this city. There will be no casualty departments. There will be no graveyards, crematorium, crying. That's not the world we live in. And if we promise people that if they believe in Jesus, they can enter into that world now, that's a lie. It's not true. We enter into a wonderful world now when we believe in Jesus. The world of assurance and the Holy Spirit and shepherd care. And sometimes the delivery from difficult situations in life. But we are not yet in the world where death is no more. But Jesus, when he came into the world, said, with me the everlasting kingdom has broken in, and I will show you what that new creation will be like. The fourth reason is often omitted, and the fourth reason Jesus performed miracles is because he had compassion for the people he met. He had compassion for them. So if you have enough bottle this afternoon, go home, and you'll not find it on a a conventional media channel, but try to look and get a video to watch or some pictures of what's going on in Syria. And, and see on your screen dead children. And what will that do for you? It will move you. You will not be able to watch it for very long, though. And you will need, because of your instinct to survive as a human being, to switch off and watch something else. If you think that breaks your heart, think what it does to the Lord Jesus. So when he confronts people, meets people in the Gospels, and he knows that the miraculous stuff he does is only for them a first step to saving faith, often in the Gospels, because he is so moved in his soul, he heals them. Now, these are the reasons Jesus performed miracles, and this is critical for you, and I really hope that you agree with this because it makes sense of the world in which we live, and it's what the Bible says. Miracles are an important first step to believing in Jesus. They are, but they are not fundamental to Jesus' mission. They are not what God sent his Son into the world primarily to do. So think of Mark's gospel. Jesus, in chapter 1, in Peter's mother-in-law's house, I think it was, and the whole town is gathered at the door to heal him. All the people from the region with sickness and diseases there. The next morning, they get up. Jesus has gone. Where is he? Peter goes to find him. Jesus, they're all looking for you. Jesus says, we are going to leave this town so I can preach the gospel, for that is why my Father has sent me. Jesus' mission in the world, and our mission in the world, is to speak a message for the forgiveness of sins. Does that mean Jesus cannot heal people today? No. Does it mean Jesus will not heal people today? No. There are occasions when he does as elders in this church, we meet with people all of the time, and if they ask us to pray for healing, we will do so, as we will tonight upstairs in that room with someone. But our faith and his faith will not be broken if God does not heal him. Because in the end of the day, everyone he heals in this age will die. Jesus knew that day if he healed that father's boy, 
One day that boy would die. And Jesus is faced with this dilemma as he is all through the Gospels. If I heal them in this present age, and they think that's what I'm here to do, and I haven't made it clear to them that I am here not to give them life in this world, but everlasting life in a new creation, they will take what I offer them and they will never come to terms with their need of salvation. And that is most powerfully evident in the Gospels in these points. Think of the man coming down through the hole in the roof. Jesus looks at him, and he is a little bit like someone today who has cancer, who, who is, is one of the people with cancer that medical help cannot alleviate their pain. Jesus looks at him, and if you think the heart of the Son of God is not desperate to heal his physical infirmity, Jesus looks at him and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. I want to give you everlasting life. And you cannot have that unless you are reconciled to God. So why does he then go and heal the man on the ground? Why does he then in this passage here heal this man in the end? Let's have a look at the detail of it. Uh, just look at the, the, the detail of the second uh, miracle. Where are we? I've lost my place. One of the children's maybe messed my notes up. The terrible little rascals between the two services. Right, here we go. They haven't messed my notes up. I, just, I have messed them up. Verse 46 of chapter 4. Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When the man heard that Jesus had come into Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now the man believed that Jesus could heal his son. Surely that's a good thing. Is that not a good thing, that this man believes wholeheartedly in Jesus that he could heal him? What does Jesus say to him? Verse 48. Please come and heal my boy. Please, Jesus. And I'm not making this an emotional sermon by saying that that man would have had tears in his eyes. Please heal him. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That is a long-winded way of saying no. How do you think that fellow felt? So hard, so confusing. And so many readers of John's gospel try to say that Jesus didn't really mean what he said. How do we know he didn't mean what he said? Well, because he healed him in the end. I'm not sure that really washes, though, with any of us, does it? Jesus looks at that family's circumstances. The dad wants his boy healed. Could there be anything that he needs more than that? That is surely the most wonderful thing that Jesus could do for them. But the boy will die even if Jesus heals him, and so will his dad. And if they don't have saving belief, they will die into everlasting hell and judgment. But if they have saving belief, even though they die, they will live for all eternity. That's why he says to the man's first question, no. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. To which the man replies, sir, please come and heal my boy. Is that not real? Thank you, Jesus, for that theological explanation. Now I understand. I'm off back to Capernaum. Jesus, please heal my son. At which point Jesus says, go, your son will live. Every time the Gospels record something as poignant and as real and as personal and as visceral as this, when Jesus says, look, you need to understand that I am the Savior of humanity. I am here to save you from your sins. I am here to give you life everlasting. I am here to bring you to a world where this stuff will be no more. Please, please, please don't think the summit of all that I offer you is a better life in your three score years and ten. And when Jesus 
takes that message into life's deepest, darkest moments like this. I think in order to stop us ministers preaching on these passages as if they were some kind of forensic text to make a theological point, Jesus heals the people. And I hope and pray, I hope and pray because I, I've seen real people die often. I hope and pray that that man and his boy in their family devotions saw the difference between believing in a man who healed him and believing in a man who forgives their sins. What evidence is there from that? Well, the man goes away from Jesus. He does what he says. It's about a 15-hour horse ride. There's no tubes or buses or anything there. You've got to get your head around that. There's no emails and no texts. And he's, he's, the next day, he's obviously ridden through the night. His servants come to meet him. And your son's well. I mean, he must have been so delighted. What would he have thought for these, like, 15 hours in the middle of the night? What would he be thinking? And then he says, it's quite strange. Well, it's quite strange. When exactly did he get better as opposed to, it's great, he's better. I want to see him. When, just tell me exactly before we see him. What was the moment... And the moment was when Jesus said, son, your, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. That's a striking phrase, isn't it? The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. What is the word that the man believed that Jesus spoke to him? That he never forgot for the rest of his life. What's the word that the man believed that Jesus had spoken to him, that he sat down with his boy and said, never, son, forget the word that Jesus spoke into our family. What was it? Immediately we think it's, go, your son will live. But I wonder and I pray and hope that the word that Jesus spoke to that family was not simply, go, your son will live, but unless you see a miracle, you will not believe. And that man who healed his son, the same man, said, there is more that I can give you than your son's life back. Now that's real Christianity. That's Christianity that makes sense of real life. Now, that's point one. How are we doing? Not bad. One hour to go. Just to say this afternoon, a bit of a preview for this afternoon's Elders Update. One of the Elders Updates this afternoon is that as staff, we have committed to cut our sermons in content and length to 30 minutes maximum, which is good, I think. You've got to, there's no point in prattling on when you're nothing to say. So that's the aim. There are times, though, when you need to say a little bit more because the stuff is important. Um, I'm not saying that that's one of these times now. I think you're all convinced. I can see it in your eyes. Saving belief in Jesus is much, much more than believing that Jesus can do miracles. Saving belief in Jesus is much, much more than believing that he is God. So what is it, saving belief in Jesus? Well, the second point I've got, and quickly on this and the third, saving belief in Jesus is standing in the light. Okay, the step from believing in miracles that leads you to saving faith is walking into the light. But saving belief comes when you stand in the light and stay in the light and don't walk out of the light. Now, that's John's language. Think of the section, chapters 2, 3, and 4. Two bookends, two miracles. Yeah, the heart of the section 
is 3.16 to 21. Just turn to that. You know it well. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should have life. Jesus, it goes on to say, walked into the darkness as the light. But the darkness loved the darkness and shut out the light. Saving faith comes when you stand in the light that Jesus shines into your life. Start dealing with the stuff that really, really matters, that pertains to all eternity. That's the central section in John chapters 2, 3, and 4, 16 to 21. Of, and what's on either side of that little section? Two miracles on the outside, a little bit in the middle about light and darkness. On either side, two people, Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. Think of Nicodemus. We don't have time to look at it. Nicodemus in the dead of night comes to Jesus in the dark. He comes to Jesus, he respects Jesus, he reveres Jesus, he believes that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. And there he is in the light, he's walked into the light, drawn by the miracles. And what does Jesus say to Nicodemus as he stands in the light? Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you've got to start from scratch. With all your credentials, I need to be Lord and Savior of your life. And Nicodemus bowed his head, said he didn't understand. But Nicodemus knew fine well that Jesus wasn't talking about him going into his mum's tummy again. Not daft. And Nicodemus, what did he do? He walked back out into the night. And does that happen still? Every single Sunday. Nicodemus had another go in chapter 7 of John. He walked into the light. Jesus spoke to him and he walked out of the light. And then wonderfully, after Jesus died, Nicodemus said, look, I'm going to live now in the light. And he said, I want to be associated with this man's death. I want to bury his body. And he lived, therefore, in the light. The Samaritan woman, Jesus met her at the well. That's the other side of the bridge, John 3, 16 to 21. She met Jesus at the well, and Jesus said, can I have a drink of water? And she said, why are you asking me? And he said, uh, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for the water of life. She didn't really know what he was saying. And then he said to her, go and get your husband. And of course, she didn't have any husbands. That's what living in the light means. That's what being in the light means. When you live in the light, it's not that you marvel at Jesus and his wonderful miracles. You forget all that because when you live in the light, he says things to you like, are you sinful? When you find on a Sunday the Word of God convicts your soul, that's the light. It's the Holy Spirit. Are you a sinner? Do you want forgiven? Do you want everlasting life? Do you want a drink of water that will make you never thirst again? She says yes. And she runs into town. Come and hear this man. He told me all that I ever did. That's all the stuff about our husbands. And they went to Jesus because she said he did this little mini miracle. And actually they said, look, Jesus, we want you to stay with us. And what did he do? He spoke to them for two days. At the end of it, he said, you're a great lady, but I don't want you anymore. We now have heard him and he is. And what does it say in John 4? What does it say? We believe that he is, what does it say? The savior of the world. When I meet with someone who's become a Christian, they never say to me, oh Jesus, he's a miracle worker. Or Jesus, do you know what he did? Do you know he turned water into wine? Do you know he fed 5,000 people? That was some picnic, wasn't it? 
You know, he raised a dead child to life. Nobody has ever said that to me. What they say, and they don't say it with these words, is the light of the glory of God shone into my life by the Holy Spirit and exposed my bleakness and led me to the cross of Jesus and washed me clean and put his spirit within me and my life changed. That's what people say. That's saving faith in Jesus. Real faith. Standing in the light. And you know, as a Christian, many of us here have been a Christian for a long time. When are you better off? When you are in the light, living by God's word, living in the spirit, or when you drift off into the darkness, which is better, which is fruitful? You come back into the light. And you're strong again, you're fruitful again, you're a blessing to others again. Saving belief in Jesus is coming into uh, the light. I've never, I think, when I've done evangelism with people who aren't Christians, done evangelism, that's a terrible phrase, isn't it? (laughs) Whenever I've had the wonderful privilege of telling people about Jesus, nobody walks away because of, I can't believe in the miracle stuff. They might say they do, but they don't. They walk away because the light of the Holy Spirit shines with a brilliance into the darkness of their life. And it says you've messed everything up. You're under God's judgment. Let me give you new life. An everlasting life. That's the week they walk away. Why? For all sorts of reasons. There's a war going on for their soul in the cosmic realms. They walk away because they will not have the lordship of Jesus. They walk away because they conclude it is better to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul. That's not a Bible quote, by the way, in case you're worried. That's the opposite of a Bible quote. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Every day, every Sunday, people make the decision to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul. Every week. Now, if saving belief in Jesus is walking into the light or staying in the light or living in the light, what is, how does that happen? Well, saving belief in Jesus or living in the light comes through Jesus' Uh, words. Now, I've not fallen into the trap, God willing, of saying that phony faith is miracle faith and real faith is word faith, as if it's about your head and not your heart. That's not true. Saving belief is saving belief. But in the end of the day, the gospel goes to the world not through miracle ministry, but through words. So we send the Atkinsons into East Asia for the next 10 years. Do pray for them. Their kids are really frightened. I mean, who wouldn't be? And that's a spiritual thing as well as a practical thing. What would they be better doing Engaging in a miracle ministry to persuade people to believe in Jesus for 10 years or teaching pastors all over East Asia how to speak God's words. You see, what converts people in the end once Jesus gets a hearing are his opening words in the Gospels. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am your good shepherd. So on and so on and so on. Not, did you see me change the water into wine? He did it, though. He gets a hearing. But what gets me through another week as a Christian is not knowing that he did that. 
is that knowing that he's with me and will never leave me and is my shepherd and my king and my Lord. And he might heal me when I get old and sick. He might do it because he wants me to have more time in the earth to do the stuff he wants me to do. But he might not. And in the end, of course, he can't in this life. Here's a hymn as I close that has become something of a, a, a watchword um, in our church life over the past six months. Just say in the first service at this point, someone collapsed and they're okay, they've gone to hospital. And, uh, you know, what I was thinking when they did, they were prone on the floor for a long time. You know, I mean, they might have died. People do like that. They're fine. But they were fine before they collapsed because they knew Jesus. There are people here in church now who do not know whether they will live or die in the next year because they're so sick. And what matters, you see, in points like that is not knowing what will happen, but knowing the stuff that is fundamental and true. So here's the hymn that we've sung often on Sunday nights. It's become a, so I stuck it on my office at home. And I think the last sort of three or four months in Chalmers Church life have been the, the most, not draining for me because it's a privilege, but the most demanding in terms of the wealth of issues going on in people's lives. You know, we've got sickness here and grief and tears in abundance at the moment. Here's the hymn. It's an oldie, but I'm old, so it's fine. I cannot tell why he whom angels worship should set his love upon the sons of men. In other words, I cannot tell you why he opened my heart to lead me from believing in Jesus who could do these things to saving belief. I cannot tell you why, but this I know that he has. And all then is calm. You can even hear silence. All then is steady. All then is steady with our souls. I cannot tell how silently he suffered. But this I know, that he heals the brokenhearted. Or, let me put that into the words of some people in the church, I am broken. I watch them. I get to watch them sing this. And I watch them, and they have every reason to be brokenhearted, and they sing with smiles and sometimes tears on their faces. But this I know, he heals the brokenhearted and stays our sin, and calms our lurking fear, and lifts the burden from the heavy laden, for yet the Savior, Savior of the world is here. I cannot tell how he will win the nations. So think of Honky last week, yeah? I mean, it's pretty scary what she's up to. Coming here on Wednesday, Bet she could stand up here, frail we soul that she is. I cannot tell how he will win the nations, how he will claim his earthly heritage, how satisfy the needs and aspirations of East and West, or in her case, the Middle East, of sinner and of uh, saint. But this I know, that all men and all people one day will see his glory and he will reap the harvest he has sown. That's real Christianity. This I know. I cannot tell how all the land shall worship when at his bidding every storm is still. This is the, the new creation. I wish I could write hymns. Don't ever let me. I can't do it. I, I, I cannot imagine how glorious it will be to live in a world where there is no sickness and no cancer and no heart disease, and no mental illness. Imagine that world. 
I walk through the Royal Edinburgh every day, twice. And you meet desperately sick people in there. I cannot imagine what that world will be like. But this I know, that Christ will come and heaven and earth will sing and this world will be made new again because at last the Savior of the world is King. Now that's real Christianity and that's what changes people's lives. So go and tell them. And, and yes, go and tell them, but often at times like this, you need to hear it yourself. Let's pray. Our Father, how we thank you for Jesus with all our hearts. What would life be like without him? And there is far too much evidence, even before our eyes in this room this morning, to think that it's all pie-in-the-sky stuff. It's real. That was a real dad and a real boy that John saw that day. Yes, Jesus healed him, and we praise you for that and for the times that you do by the real healing is the forgiveness of our sins and the new birth and the washing clean and the righteousness of Jesus and the Holy Spirit living within us and the hope of glory and eternity with Jesus. That's some healing. And that is what Jesus came to earth to give us. And that is what we are to go and proclaim to this nation in all of its desperate need and to the nations of the earth. Lord, help us to go and tell. But help us today in this moment to hear for the good of our own souls these great things. Bless that person, Lord, who was sick in the service and is now in hospital. Pray for her. And she's fine. And pray for her uh, just getting better and getting home today. But thank you, Lord Jesus, that she knows Jesus. Thank you for that. And may that be true of us all here. Thank you that Christ is the solid foundation and to stand in him and with him is to stand on solid, safe ground. And we pray these things all in his name and for his sake. Amen.